Before the lesson comes from Psalm 119. If you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, it's going to be on page 514, 514. Psalm 119, starting in verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Though you're, through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The most important book ever written is the Bible. We don't say that lightly, but that's exactly what we believe. It is a book, the Bible is, that comes from God it is a book that is about God. It is a book that tells us how we can be right with God. This time of year, a lot of people are making New Year's resolutions. And a lot of us are going to try a new reading program. Maybe you've decided on a new reading program for your daily Bible reading. You can't spend any better time in the year to come than time invested in the Word of God. Your education is lacking if you don't know what this book is all about. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, verse 4. Jesus was a man of the book. It is written. Have you never read what the prophets said? Jesus often asked. And not only is our education lacking without it, not only are we not really living if we're not investing in the Bible, we're also not prepared for this life or the next. Because the Bible teaches us how to be right with God, how God cares about us, and how we can have life through Jesus Christ, his son. This lesson this morning is going to be aimed at the Bible's big picture, helping all of us to see the overview, the bird's eye view. What does the Bible tell us about? It's a book from God, it's a book about God, and it's a book about our part in the story, in the history of this world. Open your Bibles if you would this morning. I hope you brought your copy of God's Word. Open your Bibles to the table of contents. Okay, even before Genesis chapter one, in most Bibles like mine, there is a table of contents. That is to say, there's a page where you've got the books of the Bible listed. I just want you to look at that. The table of contents in your Bible. In your table of contents, you'll find that there are 66 individual books that make up our English Bibles. Starting with Genesis and going to Revelation. You'll also notice in your table of contents that there are two divisions of the Bible. The Old Testament, that's the first 39 books. And the New Testament, that's the last 27 books. And as you think about the Bible's big picture, I want you to note this. I'm going to try to give you a chronological view of the Bible this morning. But those 66 books are not all in chronological order. Many people, when they read the Bible for the first time, they think or they assume that that's how the Bible's written, that it's written from start to finish. And yes, Genesis deals with the beginning and deals with origins. And yes, Revelation deals with a lot of things concerning the end. But in the middle, some of those books are scrambled because the Bible wasn't arranged chronologically necessarily. 
Actually, the Bible's arranged by literary type. The books of law go together. The books of history go together. The books of prophecy go together. In the New Testament, the epistles all go together. And so it's not chronological. It is arranged by literary type. That's important to keep in mind. But this book is the most important book you could ever read. And let me tell you what it's all about. We're going to start back in eternity past. Turn over one page in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. And I want you to notice the way the Bible begins. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible begins and talks about a time before the world was created. And the implication is, brothers and sisters and friends, that God is what philosophers would call ultimate reality. That God has always existed, that there has never been a place in the past where God did not exist. There has always been God. And everything else that we see and everything else that we don't see is created by that God. In the beginning, God created He was there in the beginning. In John chapter one, verses one through three, John says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. All things were created through him, he says in John one, verse three. God is ultimate reality. And as the Bible continues, you'll learn that God is a being who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all three persons who make up, who comprise God are eternal in their nature. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, John 8, verse 58. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. John 17, verse 24. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are eternal. The psalmist wrote, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So when we talk about God, when the Bible reveals him to us, the Bible indicates that God is an eternal being from eternity past to eternity future. God is, he exists. The number of his years, Job said, is unsearchable. Job 36, verse 26. The Bible presents to us God, an eternal being, no beginning and no end. Secondly, this morning, as you read through the pages of Scripture, you'll notice in Genesis chapter 1, if you've got your Bible there, that there is a creation event that takes place. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created. Now, I want you to notice as you read through Genesis chapter 1, you'll look at those verses and you'll find the source of creation is God. He decided in his sovereign will that he was going to make this world. And the Bible says that all things were created through him. As a matter of fact, specifically, the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the creator of all things, that he himself spoke all these things into existence. Colossians 1 verse 16, both the invisible things like the angels and the principalities and the powers and the visible things. God is the agent of creation. His spoken word is how creation took place. In Psalm 148, verse 5, the psalmist writes, you commanded, you spoke the words, and they were, they were created. In Genesis chapter 1, as you're looking at this particular chapter, the way creation is presented to us, it says in verse 3, then God said, let there be light, and there was. 
God didn't have to roll up his sleeves. He didn't have to pick up a hammer. God just spoke and the world was. He is the agent. He is the source and the agent of creation is his word. The duration of creation, as you read Genesis chapter one through Genesis chapter two, is six literal days. I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. The Bible in Genesis chapter one presents history to us. Genesis one is not written as mythology or fable. It is written as a historical record of how the world came into existence. And it is as historical as the accounts you read later in Genesis of Abraham and Joseph and and, and Isaac and people like that. Those were historical men who actually lived in a place in this world just, just so the creation account is a historical record of how God created the world. He spoke it into existence in a time period of six literal days. Not only that, but as you think about creation, what is the reason? Why would God who existed and nothing else existed beside him, why would he create anything? And the Bible gives us indications about that as well. The reason why God created this world is to display his glory. I like to think of it this way. A lot of you have been probably watching bowl games, you know, Christmas and New Year's, and there's a lot of bowl games on, and you've got your favorite football team. And if your favorite football team goes to a really good bowl game, and if they win, you cheer about them, you, you express, I'm, I'm happy that my team is winning. And not only that, but you, you put on your favorite team's tie and you walk around proudly when you come to services on Sunday morning because you want other people to know. My team won, right? I want to talk to other people. I don't care that you don't know about my team. I want you to know that I'm proud of my team, right? You're glorying in your favorite team. Here's the thing about God. There is no one, there is nothing that is greater than God. And God rejoices in his own glory. He expresses his own greatness, his own glory. There is nothing more magnificent than the God of heaven. And one of the reasons, maybe the reason why he created this world is to display his greatness, his glory, as if to say to the world, look at me and look at my glory and look at how glorious I am. And he rightfully deserves praise and glory for who he is. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 19, verses one through four, he said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. It's, it's telling you how great a God this is. In Isaiah 43, verses seven through 10, the Bible says that God created us, human beings, for his glory. Why did he make us? Why did he make this world? Because God is a glorious God and he wants to express that glory. And he wants to share in that glory with all of creation. Next, the Bible's big picture. We go from eternity past and we see that there was a point in time where God created the world and then turn to Genesis chapter three and we'll notice that there is what is called sometimes the fall. God made a garden and it was a beautiful place and Adam and Eve lived in that garden and God gave them a very clear commandment. In Genesis chapter two, verse 16, the Lord God commanded man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but verse 17 of chapter two, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In Genesis chapter three, beginning in verse one, the serpent who is a crafty being comes to Eve and tempts her. And Eve looks at the fruit and she thinks, you know, 
God may be holding out on me. God may not really be telling me everything I need to know here. And that fruit really looks good. And so Eve takes of the fruit and eats it and she gives some to her husband and he eats of it. They are tempted and they sin against God. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. The Bible presents sin as the problem, T-H-E, problem that faces this world. Yes, there are a lot of other things that afflict us, a lot of other things that we're concerned about, but sin, the Bible says, is the problem. It is the root problem. It is the root cause of everything else that's wrong with this world. And when God sent a savior, he sent a savior to deal with the root problem, the, the fundamental issue that faces all of us. That's the way the Bible paints the picture of this world. Sin is the problem. And when sin enters the world, beginning in Genesis chapter three, verse seven, Things like guilt and shame and fear and blame and separation from God and death itself, all those things enter the world because sin is now in the world. One of the things Christianity teaches us to do is to listen to our guilt. The world deals with guilt in a lot of different ways. You know, if you feel guilty about something, sometimes people will say, you shouldn't have to feel guilty. The, Christianity says, no, you, you need to listen to that guilt. Now, there is such a thing as false guilt. There are some things that we shouldn't feel guilty about because it's not our responsibility, the things we feel guilty about. But when we have sinned against Almighty God, when we've sinned against our fellow man, we ought to listen to that guilt and we ought to let that guilt drive us back to God, drive us to repentance, drive us to a sense of how we can serve and honor and be right with God and other men once again. Those things are a result of sin. It is the problem that this world faces. And it wouldn't be surprising maybe to us if the, if the end just came right there. Sin enters the world, Adam and Eve, creation. They sinned against God, they violated his will. But the Bible doesn't stop there. As a matter of fact, we're only into chapter three. There's 1186 more chapters to go when you read the Bible. What you enter then in Genesis chapter three is a period that I'm gonna call the period of promise. You might just think about this as the Old Testament, broadly speaking, it's a period of promise. But I want you to look at Genesis chapter three and verse 15. The Bible says that God in the midst of all the mess that is made by Adam and Eve's sin, God says something very interesting in Genesis three, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent here. And between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's the first promise that you read in the Bible where God indicates that he's gonna deal with sin. He's going to deal with the problem. He's gonna deal with the root cause of all that's wrong with this world. And there's a savior, a seed, that's going to be the one that comes to do this. Now turn in your Bibles over to Genesis chapter 12. And I want you to look at verses one through three. Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. Because centuries after Adam and Eve, by the way, God often works very slowly in history. We're in a hurry up microwave kind of culture. Let's go fast, let's get things done, let's move. It takes God sometimes centuries before he reveals any more of his will as you read through the pages of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament and even indeed the New Testament. God is working on a much different timeline than you and I are sometimes. We need to pay attention to him. 
In Genesis 12, verses one through three, centuries after Adam and Eve, God speaks to a man named Abram, later to be renamed Abraham. And God says, Abram, I want you to get out of your country and from your family and your father's house, and I want to go, you to go to a land that I will show you. Genesis 12, verse two, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know what he means by that? He means that Abraham is going to be the ancestor of this promised savior. So what God is doing is he's picking the family tree of this Messiah, this savior who's going to come centuries after Abraham. But that is one of the most fundamental passages in the entire Old Testament. As a matter of fact, Genesis 12, one through three is a good interpretive lens for everything else you read in the Old Testament. Why was God so good to Israel? Why didn't he just wipe them completely out? Why did he preserve them? Why was so much attention given to genealogies and lists of ancestors and their families? Why is so much of that in the Old Testament? Because God is saying, I'm gonna send a savior and this guy, Abram, Abraham, is gonna be the patriarch. He's going to be the number one ancestor of the Messiah, the savior. God chose Abraham to do that. And then as you get on later in Genesis, God chooses one of Abraham's grandchildren, Jacob, also named Israel. Jacob's going to be the one, not Esau, but Jacob. He's gonna be the ancestor of the savior. And Israel has 12 sons. And out of those 12 sons, God chooses Judah, one of those sons. Judah is going to be the ancestor. He's going to be the family heritage of the Messiah, Genesis 49, verse 10. And then as time goes on, even from the tribe of Judah, there are lots of different family lines and God chooses David, the king. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 14, and God says, I'm gonna make my Messiah, my son, come from the line of David. And when you get down to the New Testament, in, in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke, you find family trees. Both in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke, you find two family trees, and one is for Joseph. And interestingly enough, Joseph's family tree in Matthew chapter one goes all the way back to David, all the way back to Abraham. And then you find a family tree for Mary in Luke chapter three, you know why? because God had been saying for centuries, it's from this family, it's from this king, it's from this line that my Messiah is going to come. God promised to deal with sin. God promised that what was messed up back in the garden and what has been messed up by many countless other sins throughout history, God is gonna deal with that root problem and he's gonna send a savior to do it. Here's how you'll know him when he comes. He's from this heritage. He's from this line. It's the area of promise. Many promises in the Old Testament, by the way, about the Son of God, about the suffering servant, about the Messiah, and how he was going to come and bear our iniquities and bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 12 is a great passage along those lines. What happens next as you read through the Bible? You come to the New Testament Four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, deal with Jesus Christ. And it is the most important person, the most important era of human history, Jesus Christ. 
the fact that he came, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as you look at what the Bible has to say about Jesus, there are so many things you could emphasize about his significance, about his importance, but I want you to just think about these. The Bible emphasizes his equality with God. He is not a created being. He has always existed from eternity past. John chapter one, verse three, he himself created all things. Hebrews one, verse three, by him, all things consist. They continue to hold together. Philippians two, six and seven, he did not count it as a thing to be grasped, as robbery to be counted equal with God. Jesus is God, he's divine. But not only that, the Bible describes his great poverty. When he came to this world, he was born in a stable. He had nowhere to lay his head. As he lived in this world, as far as we know, he never owned property other than some clothes. Second Corinthians eight verse nine says this, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor that we through him might be made rich. That's a tremendous passage to contemplate. As you think about Jesus, the Bible describes his deep sorrow. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Suffering is part of being in this world and Jesus suffered more than anyone who has ever lived and he did so for you and for me because he didn't want us to suffer and to bear the consequences of sin before a holy and a righteous God. When we think about Jesus, the Bible, it describes his unfailing obedience. I always do the will of him who sent me. John chapter eight, verse 29, I always do that which pleases him. Jesus came to unfailingly obey the will of his heavenly father. And by doing so, show us that obedience is what God expects. It's what he desires of your life and of mine. Jesus did it without flaw, without fault. He never sinned. When we read about Jesus, we read about his mighty power, how he went about doing good. Acts chapter 10, verse 38, he could heal the sick and he could cause the blind to see and he could even forgive sins and how God raised Jesus from the dead and has now seated him at the right hand of his throne. Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21. And if God would do that for Christ, he can do that for you and me as well. He can raise us spiritually and physically from the dead. The mighty power of Jesus. The most amazing, remarkable thing about Jesus by far is his self-sacrificing love. Why should a holy God care about his creation? Why would he love me? The Bible says that Jesus loves us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and manifested the love of God. Romans chapter five and verse eight. What Jesus does for us is to take care of the root problem. There is a lot that's wrong in all of our lives. There are a lot of different symptoms and things that are going on in our lives, but the root problem is the problem of sin. And Jesus is the only one who can deal with that problem. One of the things we do as Christians is we look to Jesus constantly for our salvation. We look to his cross for our salvation because we believe there's only one way, only one way to be right with God. It's through him, John 14, verse six. Next, open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew 28. I want you to look at verses 18 through 20. At the conclusion of his earthly ministry, after his resurrection from the dead, Jesus spoke to his apostles, and by implication, he gives this same charge to us. Matthew 28, 
beginning in verse 18. We enter into the period after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus that we're going to call the church age. You might call this the period of mission. You're living in this period right now. I'm living in this period right now. It began 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost, and you and I are still living in this period of Bible history. Yes, the Bible relates to us, and yes, we fit in there. Incidentally, in your daily Bible reading, it's good for you to stop and to think about the time period that you're reading about. As you think about where the Bible has this particular book on the timeline, if you're reading from Leviticus, you're reading the period of promise. If you're reading from Isaiah, you're reading the period of promise. The Messiah will come, but he hasn't come yet. If you're reading in Luke, you're reading the period about Christ. This is his life. This is what he's doing. But if you're reading in Acts, for example, or if you're reading in Romans or Ephesians, now you're reading about the period of the church, the period of the body of Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18. The Bible says, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, Jesus says. What are we supposed to be doing in the period, in the age of the church? We are to be proclaiming the gospel. Jesus has come, the Messiah is here and he wants all men everywhere to repent. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 26. 1 Corinthians 15 verses one through five. The gospel that I preach to you is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures, Paul says. Go preach the gospel to every creature, Jesus said in Mark 16, verse 15. Along with preaching the gospel is the expectation that people should obey the gospel. I want you to listen to what I'm about to say this morning. God wants you to obey the gospel because in our lives, sin is a reality. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, verse 23. God wants you to obey the gospel. It's not enough just to hear the message and to say, I'm thankful that Jesus died for me. We must respond in loving, submissive obedience. Jesus is the author of our salvation. And the way that he shows us to be saved is by obeying in similar fashion to him. Hebrews chapter five, verses eight and nine. Here in this present time, the goal that we have, what are we doing here at Katy? What's our objective? What's our mission? Put succinctly, it is to reproduce the image of Christ in people. If I could sum up what I'm trying to do as a gospel preacher, that's it. Trying to reproduce the image of Christ in people. You know how it starts? It starts when we die with him, when we're buried with him in baptism, and when we're raised to walk in newness of life. But beyond that, we live a life and more and more as we live this life, more of Christ needs to be seen in us, more of him and less of ourselves. Conform to the image of his son, Romans chapter eight, verse 29. That's what we're all about. And so as the church, as the body of Christ, if reproducing the image of Christ in other people is what we're all about, then how do you go about doing that in practical terms? Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 tells you two things. Number one, we are to make disciples. Making disciples involves teaching and baptizing. 
what Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 19. Teach them, baptize them. That's how disciples are made. Why preach sermons on baptism? Because Jesus himself said that's the point at which someone participates in the new birth. And then after disciples have been made, we are to mature those disciples. After they've been baptized, teach them to observe all things that I've commanded them. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. So what is the church all about? What is Christianity all about? It's about putting our trust in Jesus Christ because he's the only one that can save us from this root problem of sin. And the way that we find salvation is by emulating him, by becoming his disciples through repentance and baptism. And then by maturing to become more and more like Jesus for the rest of our lives. That's the Bible's picture of what we're to be all about right now. Everything else is just fluff. Everything else is just noise. This is our mission, this is our core. And this is God's will for you, that you become a disciple of Jesus and that you start maturing to be more and more like Jesus. And then finally, as you look at the Bible's big picture from eternity past, the Bible takes us to eternity future. Open your Bibles to John chapter five, and I want you to look at verses 28 and 29 with me. John chapter five, verses 28 and 29. Jesus talked about there's a day coming in which the church age, this time in which we're living right now is going to come to a conclusion. And at that point, eternity future is going to begin. John 5, 28, Jesus says, do not marvel at this for the hour is coming, John 5, 28, in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. What's Jesus talking about? He's saying there is a day on which the dead are going to rise. I'm going to return, Jesus said. I'm going to prepare a place for you, he told his disciples, and then he ascended into heaven. In John 14, verses 1 through 3, but he made this promise. He said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you to myself. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10 puts it this way. It says that we have been baptized and now we are waiting for the Son. That's what we're doing. We're trying to make disciples and mature disciples and all along we're waiting for the Son who's going to save us from wrath in that final day. He's coming again and the dead are going to be raised as we just read. How will you know Jesus has returned? Because all the dead of all the ages are gonna be raised. And we who are living when Jesus returns are gonna be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall ever be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Not only that, on that last day, final judgment will occur. God expects there will be mandatory attendance on that day. God has set the day, he has set the time, he has appointed a judge, Jesus Christ the righteous, and God is going to judge the world in righteousness. He's not going to miss any sin. He's not going to make any mistakes. He's not gonna overlook anyone. You can't hide behind the coattails of your family members or your ancestors or your heritage. You will stand alone before almighty God on that day and so will I. Acts 17, 30 and 31, the final judgment will occur and sentence will be given for all of us. To those who have done good for the righteous, according to Jesus, they will rise to a resurrection of life. The Bible speaks about that reward as being a place called heaven. 
a place where we can exist with God, where we can be in his presence and worship and fellowship with him and with the saints of all the ages for all of eternity. There is no better place that you could ever find yourself. But for the wicked, Jesus also spoke about a resurrection of condemnation. The Bible describes that as hell. Jesus said more about hell than he did about heaven in his earthly ministry. He talked about a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die and where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and where there is outer darkness. Jesus talked about that faith and he talked about it very explicitly because he wants us to realize you may get seven, eight decades, you may. You may get nine decades in this world. It's just a drop in the bucket. It's what you do with those seven, eight, nine decades. You may not get that many. It's what you do with the time that you're given that determines whether you have responded to God in a way that reflects his glory and whether or not you're ready to face him in judgment. As you look at what the Bible is saying to us, it's saying you matter to God. You matter so much that he would work through the centuries to bring about a plan where you could be saved and you could be right with him. And the way that that happens is through Jesus Christ and him alone. And the urgent plea that God would make to you this morning is this, be saved from your sins. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Yes, there's a lot wrong with the world, but sin is the root problem. And if you don't deal with sin, and if you don't let Jesus deal with your sin, you're not prepared to face him, and you're not prepared for eternity. Can I appeal to you this morning, if you're not a Christian, to obey the gospel this morning? Can I appeal to you to put on Christ in baptism, to become just a Christian and to be part of this great mission of making more disciples of Jesus and helping those who are already disciples to mature? That's God's will for your life right now. Whatever you're doing, wherever you are, that's what he wants for you. If we can help you obey the gospel this morning, if we can help by praying for you, won't you make your way forward while together we stand and while we sing?